You're listening to the 2023 Central Texas Men's Conference. Learn more at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Peter Reed. Thank you very much, you guys, for leading us in worship in the way that you do. It's great. We appreciate it. Appreciate you. Yeah. Well, good morning. How y'all doing? Was that okay? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to be culturally sensitive. Man, I sat with a group of brothers from Galveston this morning, and I, my respect and admiration of you guys just skyrockets. Just the responsibility that you carry in your way of life, it's very enriching for me to be here, so I want to thank you for that. Yeah, we've got a PowerPoint this morning, I think, and I want to talk about biting from John chapter 15. And verses 1 to 5. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. I'll read these five verses. And um, then we'll consider the Lord Jesus together. By the way, John chapter 15 comes out of a section in the Gospel of John. These are his last words to his disciples. It's commonly known as the Upper Room Discourse. And I suppose if you were to put a title... These chapters, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17 in particular, you you could call it for believers only. This was his last instructions to the guys that he had mentored and discipled for those three odd years. Anybody's last words are very important, and these are some of Christ's last words. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that the fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. Branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, I am the true vine. A vine is a form of life. We call it plant life. And the offer of the gospel is life. Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but go to If that's what your translation says, it's a bad translation. He did not say go to heaven. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, have eternal life. Eternal life is not a place I enter after I die. Eternal life is a person who enters me before I die. And that person is Jesus by a work of the Spirit. And John wrote in 1 John 5 verses 11 and 12, and this is the witness that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son does not have the life. 
The offer of the gospel is the eternal life of Christ here and now for this life. And because of that, eternal life begins at faith, not death. And sometimes in my past, I had relegated the good news to something that I was going to first enter into after I died. And it's been a long educational process in my life as a Christian to understand that God gave me life here and now, the very life of Christ in dwelling by his soul. I was born again. The essence of life, I'll mention this later on, but the essence of life is that it is reproductive and life reproduces according to its own kind. And so the vine reproduces his own kind of life. Eternal life produces eternal fruit. Jesus spoke about this further to Nicodemus and he called it a new birth. And he said to him three times in that passage, you must be born again. And he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. When somebody's born, the life of a man enters into the life of a woman and a new life begins where there was no life before and the evidence of that life is a new child. And the life of God enters into the life of man imparting the literal resurrection life of Christ by his spirit into my being and yours so that his spirit raises my spirit up out of the dead and he there present in my life to be expressed through me. I'm the true vine. When something is true, it's not optional. It's not an opinion to be discussed. It's an imperative. Furthermore, whatever is true exposes that which is untrue or a fake. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. And there's a sense in which part of his ministry was to expose the fallacy. And the hardest words of Jesus were directed towards religious the well-known sinners. He wanted to be among the well-known sinners because he said, it's the sick who need a doctor. That's why I'm here, because my name is Savior. There's a wonderful verse which speaks of Christ in Isaiah 53 and verse 2. Isaiah 53 and verse 2. It's a prophetic statement about Jesus. And in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, it says of Jesus, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Jesus lived in a spiritual desert in his day. Jesus lived in an environment that was hard ground. And I would venture to suggest that somebody here lives in the environment of hard ground. Perhaps your relationships with others who don't yet know Jesus is reflected by hard ground. Perhaps your place of work, perhaps where you live and reside is hard ground. Jesus lived in a day 
when he was surrounded by a spiritual moral desert. And yet it says here, he grew up before his father like a tender shoot and like a root out ground. That's why I brought this other quote this morning from this uh, on our PowerPoint. Very simply this. I wish I could take credit for this. I was somewhere where I read this quote, but somebody put it very well when they said, circumstances are incidental to the life of Christ within me. He is not affected by my circumstances the way that I am. His life is eternal life. His life is indestructible life, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 16. That means his life always wins. That tells me that my environment and my senses do not have the last word on my growth in Christ. My environment is never the determining factor of my spiritual maturity. Spiritual growth and maturity is not determined by my environment. It says here in Isaiah 53 and verse 2 that Jesus grew out like a tender shoot out of parched ground. His life flourished there. And sometimes when I speak to people, when we're, when we're you know, around God's people, some say, man, my church is so dry. I speak to God's servants and they say, you know, this mission is in such chaos. And that, but maybe that's why God has us at that very place. Maybe that's exactly why we're supposed to be there. Circumstances are incidental to the life of Christ within me. Life is overcoming life. His life is immortal, indestructible, and his life always, always wins. Praise God. I'm the true of the branches. A branch has no life in itself. You separate a branch from the, uh, from the vine and it dries up and dies. A branch is very simply a partaker of the indwelling presence of the life of the vine. And the branch is the channel through which the vine reproduces its life. We're just the means, we're just the channel. Uh, my wife comes from a tribe in Germany known as the Schwäbisch people. These are hardworking people. They tend to be, you know, rather um, thrifty on their words. They don't speak much, but they're hard workers. That's where you find Mercedes-Benz and Bosch and companies like that. And one day when I was at home, and we're about to go over to Bodensielf to... Uh, join the other team that we're involved with in this ministry, my wife recognized that I was enjoying a few minutes of self-pity. And it was all about measy-weezy. And she recognized this, and she went out to our, uh, our grapevine, and she got a branch, and I've carried this with me ever since this day. <laughs> And saying about a half, a half a foot away from my face. And she just said, listen, you're just the branch. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Now let's go. <laughs> Meet her, don't you? <laughs> that was a good word. We're just the branch. 
We're just the means. And we're the means by which the life which is eternal, immortal life wants to express himself. So we needn't take ourselves so seriously. We need to take Christ very seriously. Christ did not come to improve my life. He came to impart his life to me by his spirit because the one who died for me rose again to live in me. And in in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, scripture says that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who lives in me. Death is human weakness taken to its most extreme form. You can't be any weaker than dead. And if that spirit can animate a dead man's body to walk out of the tomb, is he big enough for my anger? Is he big enough for my fear? Is he, is he big enough for my habitual sin pattern? Absolutely. Peter, how can you stand up there and say that? Well, if he is po- to overcome death, those things are a piece of cake. It's just that I, 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 I get into this thinking pattern that, that he can't overcome this. And I'm, I'm more preoccupied with my weakness than I am his strength to overcome me. You see, I am my greatest need. Peter Reed is the emergency. And praise God, he lives in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's pretty frustrating trying to do something when God says you can do nothing. And sometimes I spend a lot of time trying to make the impossible possible. Sometimes I'm trying to live a life that indwells me, Christ's life. And God didn't call me to copy the life of Christ. He called me to cooperate with the life of Christ who dwells within me by his spirit. I was on Vancouver Island, Canada, for a number of years and worked at our center there. And I was at a church. And I'm old enough to remember the day when the WWJD bracelets came out. Now I go into bookshops and there are all kinds of letters on them. I can't even talk anymore. But I said in the message, I said, if what we mean by what would Jesus do, that we're going to set out to imitate his character on the street. I talked about it a little bit more, and I, I was at the pastor's home for lunch, and the wife of the pastor looked at me and she said, you know, that really got under my skin because that's the way I, I raise my kids. In fact, this past week, my son was misbehaving. I had to discipline him, and I looked at my son and I said to him, listen, next time you get into that situation, look at your WWJD bracelet and do what Jesus would do. You know what the kids said? He looked up at his mom and said, yeah, but mom, I'm not Jesus. (laughs) I said, I like little kids theology. If we read Jesus, we go back to the gospel of John and, and read the statements where Jesus said, for apart from my father, I can do nothing. 
It is my Father who dwells within me who does his works. I sympathize with the mother because that was my attitude when I received Christ. (laughs) I received Christ and quickly forgot that I received Christ. I know nobody else's mistake, but I did. And so I thought that because Jesus died for me, I owed him godliness. And as a teenager, that meant don't drink this, don't smoke that, don't go there, that obey and honor your parents, read through the Bible in a year, and and share Christ with your friends. And I was having a tough time. I couldn't say this in the church, I can admit it now. I was more attracted to what my non-Christian friends were doing than sometimes the kids that I met in church. For heaven's sakes, you want to live as a young person. I understood that, but it was a dead-end street. My parents were, and so they would hear that there's going to be a fall breakaway camp, and uh, there's going to be a speaker and a band and other Christian young people, including females, and so they said, we'll sign you up. And so I went, and there was a band and a speaker at the time. At the end of the retreat, the speaker would give an evangelistic message, and he'd say, if you've never received Christ, come tonight. I knew that I had received Christ. That was very evident in my life, the day that I received him. But then he tacked on another part of it, and he said, well, if you have, you've received Christ, but you're not living for Jesus, we would invite you to come tonight and rededicate your life to Christ. So I came and rededicated my life to Christ. with a sincere in the world, when the conditions were right. I went back to school, and about two or three weeks later, after the warm fuzzies of the retreat had worn off time. Do you know the human heart is very interesting? You know that you're heading for something you shouldn't be doing, and you do it anyway. That leads to a dichotomy in the human soul, and you lived with a seer conscience, and then you are on the outside that you aren't on the inside. I know nobody understands this. This is why I have to explain it. So my parents got concerned, and they said, listen, there's a ski retreat. We signed you up. There's going to be a speaker band, other young youth group, same program, great time. The end of the retreat, there was an evangelistic message. You never received Christ, come tonight. And perhaps there's somebody here who's received Christ biting. And you know it. We invite you to come tonight, rededicate your life to Christ. I came and re-re-dedicated my life to Christ. (laughs) Went back to school. More effort. More failure. More shame. One year, we went to the family camp where I received Christ as a 13-year-old, and my parents were so concerned year, they left me there a second week with another family (laughs) and then drove home. There was an evangelistic message, never received Christ, come receive him. Well, if you're not living for the Lord and you're backslidden, we would invite you to come this week and rededicate your life to Christ. And if you mean business with Jesus, go throw all that horrible music into the garbage can when you get home. So I came and re-re-rededicated my life to Christ. And I went home and I threw ZZ Top, Charlie Daniels, Eric Clapton, uh, Al Jarreau, Kiss, uh, Alice Cooper. 
I think I hid the Bee Gees somewhere in my room, though. I didn't want to get too, too radical. Stupidest decision I ever made in my life. Threw all that good music away. I walk down the streets of Stutt. I see these record shops. I could have made a mint on that today. And so that was my philosophy. Then I went to Bible school in 1900 and mind your own business. And I went to Bible school, I was 18. And the first lecture, I don't know who planned this, but he lectured on the book of Hosea. I said, who? Because I don't know how many times I tried to read through the Bible in a year and I got caught and got really discouraged and never continued. So I'd never heard of Hosea before. But I still keep in touch with this, this former teacher to this day. And I'll never forget when he said, you need to understand that the Christian life is not difficult. Well, that got my attention. What do you mean it's not difficult? I've been, I've been giving it my best shot. And I draw the conclusion that other people had more than I did. And I had settled for the peace of defeat. And I just thought, I'll never, I'll never be a godly man. Well, he didn't stop there. He said, the not difficult, it's impossible. It's like I closed my Bible. I said, I just flew 5,000 miles, listen to this guy whose accent I can barely understand, tell me that the Christian life is impossible. My confusion, that statement is indicative of the spiritual deception under which I had been living for the first five years of my Christian life. Nobody ever told me John 15. For this light to shine in this condition, that's not difficult. That's impossible. Because only the presence of electricity in the possible, only the presence of Christ in a Christian who has learned to live in utter dependence upon him, knowing that I can't, but he can. That's the only way that the Christian life, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Somebody's seated here and they're saying, Peter, I can do a lot of things apart from Christ. And that's true. And in, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, Scripture calls those dead works. They're works. They involve effort, planning, sometimes money, other people. But they're dead because they do not stem from the Christ within me. And one day I'm going to stand before him and he is going to reward me according to what I allowed him to do through me. Because that's the fruit that remains. I can produce as terminal. He produces the thing that's eternal. He produces fruit that remains. And then he says about He didn't say abide in the other branches. He said abide in me. I praise God for the men who have walked beside me for about 50 years now. And I've learned more from them than any book I read or lecture I sat in. And when Paul said chapter 4 and verse 9, the things you have heard 
and seen in me do these things and the God of peace will be with you. I'm thankful for those men and women. Many of them are no longer here, but they did a good job. They would never let me cling to their person. They always drove me to Jesus because they knew one day I'm no longer going to get him. And if you're so dependent upon me that your Christian life falls apart when I'm no longer there, I haven't done my job. And sometimes we are placing demands on Christians that only can fill. Again, I brought a quote by Oswald Chambers. And he said this. He said, drink deep and f- the love of God, and you will do- not demand the impossible from the love of man. I like that. Abide in the vine. And because the branch is asked to live in utter dependence upon the vine, the vine gladly takes responsibility for the branch. What a privilege we are that Christ would take responsibility for me and for you. You abide in me. Probably the fastest way to consider this is to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 16 to 18. It's really just one long sentence. 1 Thessalonians 5 in verses 16, 7, and 18. Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, Abide in me. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, Give thanks. Do you notice in that passage the words in everything, always, without ceasing? And when I read scripture, the Spirit of God was very to put those words in the writers of the New Testament mouths for a very simple reason. (laughs) I'm an expert in thinking that I'm the exception. This is just, this, this cannot be done. Scripture does not allow that. Jesus Christ does not say to Peter, oh, Peter, your case is too hard. Oh, Peter, my demand, oh, sorry about that. Let's just lower the bar a little bit. More people left Jesus Christ in his ministry than received him, and he never went running after them and changed the conditions. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. The language of Scripture is so extreme because the sufficiency of Christ is so complete. Rejoice always. I used to get a little bit ticked off when I, when I read that. Rejoice always. Because I thought that Christians then, it was demanded of us that we were supposed to feel happy all the time. I thought that that meant enjoy everything we face, even tragedy. And so that verse bothered me. Because that's not how my life is lived. 
A Christian is not called to deny reality. I don't have to call something good that's in reality bad. I don't have to say I enjoy this pain. That is sense. But I have to start with rejoicing. What do we mean by that? Our first ministry trip as a family, when Gabby and the kids and I were home in California, we were there for two weeks, and the weekend between, we had free, and the director of the camp said, let me take you to Disneyland. This is July, August. I come from Minnesota, and I'm thinking, it's going to be really hot, and do I want to stand among that many people in the Southern California sun? But... He's the host, I'm the guest, and we can be thankful that he was so kind. Not only was he kind, he had something, I think it was called a fast pass. And what that allowed us to do is to walk around this long line of sweaty people and go right up to the front and get on the ride and then leave and go do the next thing at the next ride Furthermore, my friend is 6'6", so he was easy to follow around Disneyland, and we just followed the giant all Disneyland, and I'm thinking to myself, man, am I glad I'm with him. I am so glad that he's my friend. I rejoiced. Did I enjoy sweating in the Southern California sun? No. Did I, did I enjoy, you know, feeling sick and have to man up on some of these rides? No. 1985, I went with a missionary uh, who worked with a mission called Light in the East. This is when the Cold War is really reaching its pinnacle, and we went to Romania. And our responsibility was to visit churches and individuals and just smuggling in Bibles, we weren't necessarily, you know, planting churches, anything like that. We were just going to Romania to visit the brothers and sisters in Christ. And for anybody who knows the history of Romania, Ceausescu was still in power, one of the most brutal dictators behind the Iron Curtain. So we get to the border of Romania. We drove through, at that time, uh, Yugoslavia. We get to the border. There is a long line of cars, cars there. Well, my friend was very wise. He pulled a big pack of cigarettes, shows it to the guard. It was like a fast pass to the front of that line. They started shoving mirrors under our car, and they took us out into the interrogation room. It's kind of freaking me out, because at that time, what we see here is the worst possible scenario. So my mind's, you know, gravitating towards the worst possible scenario, and we get into this interrogation room with this soldier, unpacks my friend's bag, and he finds a cassette tape. I don't know, do I need to show a picture of that for some folks? (laughs) And he said, what is this? Is this propaganda? And my friend just said, well, then have a listen. He puts it into his little cassette recorder. It was Johnny Cash. (laughs) And my friend said, you like that? Yeah, I do. You want to keep it? Yes. And we were on our way. (laughs) One day, we drove the majority of the day. We get to a small town in the evening. I was not allowed to know where we were going. These towns were very poor. We get out of the car, walking to an intersection. These are unpaved roads. There were no stoplights, just a rusty sign. 
And all of a sudden, he says to me, don't look behind you. Walk to the section, cross the street, go back to the car. We're going we're gonna to step in and drive away. We did that and drove away. I said, what was that about? He said, we were being followed. I was really glad he was with me. That's what it means to rejoice. You're really glad you're not alone. Jesus said, I'll forsake you. He is as present in me as the air I breathe. And he has agreed to take total responsibility for me if I'm willing to depend totally on him. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now to carry an unheard conversation on with the Lord throughout the day. Prayer in reality considers my need his problem. Prayer considered his problem. Gabby and I, when we're at home, we get up, we go downstairs, probably around 7 o'clock, and, and we have our time with the Lord. We pray together, and then we go over to Bodensdale for the street. If Gabby called me at 10 a.m. and said, Shots, can I talk to you? And my response was, well, listen, I was there from 7 to 8 this morning. I'll be there tomorrow morning from 7 to 8, too. We can talk there. Uh, be a pretty frosty greeting when I came home that evening. Why do we do that with Jesus? We came to an appointment and then stop talking the rest of the day. I've realized you can sit in a staff meeting. uh, You can write emails. For heaven's sakes, I can, and I can be speaking to Jesus. Who said you have to fold your hands and close your eyes? I'd be dead by now. I can stand in front of a group of people and in my heart be praying for them at the same time that I'm preaching in front of them. Pray without ceasing. A man by the name of Gerhard Terstegen lived in the 17th century, said this. He said, this is your constant work, to remain self-aware and to walk with the Lord in the hidden place of your spirit, as if he and you were the only ones in the world. You don't have to ignore the people around you, but you live with constantly. Considering your need, his problem being very, very glad that he is with you, he will never leave you or forsake you, and he has committed himself to taking responsibility for me, wherever I am. And lastly, in everything, give thanks. Faith is expressed in the attitude of gratitude. Faith is expressed in the attitude of gratitude because faith reckons with that which has been given and done. Now, in my life, I myself into unbelief at a certain point and in a certain area of my Christian life because of the vocabulary that I learned in church. So at the end of the service, 
Somebody stands in front and they close their eyes and they say, Lord, please go with us into this new week. Amen. I don't know how many worship services I have attended and people say, Lord, we invite you into us tonight as God's people. Somebody's got to say this. When Christ lives within me, I never have to ask him to go with me. I never invite him into our presence when he lives within me and is closer than the air that I breathe. I can thank him. And I realize that my vocabulary unconsciously taught me to deal with the absence of Christ's life rather than the presence of Christ in my life. And so I had to change my vocabulary. And somebody's going to come up to me and they're going to say, yeah, but Peter, that's not what we meant. Well, then let's say what we meant. I need every reminder, and even if I have to remind myself, I need to know Jesus lives, he is present in me, he will never leave me or forsake me, his life is stronger than death, therefore stronger than my anger, stronger than my temptation, stronger than Thank you that you live in me. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you bear much fruit. The essence of life is the power to reproduce. And life always reproduces according to its own kind. That's why dogs give birth to dog life. Cats give birth to cat life. Gives birth to and reproduces his life and the character of his life through me. As I said yesterday, it's called the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of the saint. That's who Christ is. He's patient, kind. I'm not. I tend to be angry, impatient. I spend a lot of time trying to control things that I don't have control of, and then I get ticked off about it. All fruit has its origin in the vine, not the branch. And the vine is able to reproduce his quality of life from doubt, writing his character on my heart as we heard last night. If I'm willing to live as dependent upon him as a light bulb is upon electricity, Lord, do the change on the inside. His command is to abide in him. It's interesting, he didn't command us to bear fruit, that's actually the promise. The command to me is to abide in him. I was in Austria at a small church many years ago, and a woman came up to me after the service when I was speaking on John 15, and she said, Peter, why don't I see more fruit in my life as a Christian? Any one of us would echo that statement. I know I would. What I said to her was this, if you'd look up here. I said, Jesus said, I am the vine you are the branches. He who abides in him, he bears much fruit, and there's the fruit out on that end. There's a temptation as a branch to look towards the fruit. I want to know that this thing is working. I want to know that my Christian life functions. The problem with that is the following. The more you look towards the fruit, the more the life-giving relationship is here is disturbed. And, and the really is, the more you look, the less there will be. 
And the less there is, the more you look, and the more you look, the less there is. And pretty soon you have sunk into this black hole of introspection, wondering why do I see such little fruit in Christian? One answer, we're looking for it. Look to him. He said, abide in me. And we're not taking our spiritual temperatures. The paralysis of analysis is one of the biggest thieves I know in the Christian life. Trying to analyze my own spiritual maturity. That is a dead end street. When I was, you know, a kid, we'd go to my grandparents' home in Wisconsin, and four of us would pile out of this station wagon like circus clowns, you know, coming out of a, you know, a hat or something like that. And my grandparents would be standing on the front step. Their first words were, oh, my goodness, have you grown? It's not like I was coming to breakfast every week and saying, whoa, dude, Scott, look at this. I grew a millimeter last night. I didn't notice that. You don't notice your own spiritual growth. Others do. And we don't need to take our temperature. John said this, 1 John two twenty seven. as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. That's his spirit. And you have no need for anyone to teach. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. He teaches us along the way. James Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission, which became Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And somebody asked him one time, are you aware of the fact at every minute that you're abiding in Christ? He said, no, but I am aware. I like that. And he'll make me aware of that. And growing in spiritual maturity is actually being able to do less and less without Jesus while being able to do more and more with him. You go. I need to close because I've gone over time. I brought a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. He said this, I looked to Jesus and the dove of peace filled my soul. I looked to the dove of peace and he flew away. Do you know what I'm noticing? The people who have influenced me the most in Christ are often the very ones that are least aware. They don't get me in the corner with their bony finger and try and play the fourth person of the Trinity and say, straighten up. They live with Jesus in such a way that it is infectious. And I go to presence feeling like I'd been in the presence of Jesus. And I say in my heart, I want to know Jesus like that. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your incredible patience with us as we learn to abide in Christ. And Lord Jesus, at the end of this session, I, I want to thank you. We don't need to ask you to go with us. because you live within us. And I would simply pray that you would make us more sensitive to your presence and teach us the life of faith that says thank you. Teach us to rejoice that you'll never leave us or forsake us no matter what is happening today. May your word bear fruit in the days to come for your own name's sake. Amen.